Welcome to The Brian Buffini Show. On a recent episode, we told you about a new feature called Takeover Tuesday, where Dermot Buffini, the CEO of Buffini & Company, would sit down with people who've applied the mindsets, motivation, and methodologies of success. He wanted to hear about the highs and lows, the wins and losses they experienced along their journey. And today is our very first Takeover Tuesday with Dermot. Welcome to the show. Thanks, David. Great to be here. I'm so looking forward to being with you one Tuesday every month for this new show. It's a great chance for me to introduce you to some of the fantastic people I've come across that I think you'll love hearing from. And we've got a great interview lined up for you today. You know, growing up in Ireland, I never thought I'd meet a millionaire, never mind a billionaire. And I recently flew to Denver, Colorado to sit down with the chairman and founder of Remax International, Dave Linegar. Dave started his business in 1973 with a ton of drive and a business plan that was sketched on the back of a napkin. And for those of you not familiar with Remax, it's a global brand with over 100,000 real estate agents in over 150 countries worldwide. Today, it's ranked number eight in the top franchise global standings and just behind major brands such as McDonald's, KFC and 7-Eleven. It's an amazing story and I know the Remax story, but what I really wanted to know was the Dave Lineker story. And it's a fascinating one of a true entrepreneur who would not give up and persisted in the pursuit of paving his way to success. There's so much great stuff here. I hope you enjoy it. I hope you take lots of notes. Well, Dave, thanks so much for doing this. My pleasure. We really appreciate it. You know, the purpose of these podcasts is to dig into success, to understand what's really involved in being successful. And I think you've done pretty well in your life. I think you've done well. And also, I think that, uh, you know, as an entrepreneur and people listening to this podcast, you are, I think if, if you looked up the word entrepreneur in the dictionary, there might be a picture of you right there and right beside it. And I know we're sitting here in a beautiful building in Denver, uh, 12 stories and beautiful, beautiful views, great team of people. But I know that this is not where the story starts. You're over 44 years since Remax started, is that yes. right? But before we get into kind of some of the Remax story, I looked this up because I didn't know where Marion, Indiana was. And I found out that the other famous person that came from Marion, Indiana was James Dean. I didn't know that. But apparently he didn't stay very long. But could we start there? Let us know what was it like growing up in Marion, Indiana? A uh, farming community, mm -hmm. fairly small population, and then at the time uh, depended on factories because we're so close to Detroit. And so we had a Fisher body, we had a Chrysler, we had a glass factory, uh, RCA built... Uh, color television sets there and obviously all of those business left. Mm -hmm. The community 50 years ago was thriving. Today it has the third highest unemployment of any county in the state. Mm -hmm. Remarkable set of problems. Uh, RCA moved their production to Japan and 4,000 good union paying jobs disappeared. Mm -hmm. All the factories closed and all those jobs went. And so it's a, a change in uh, the way America works. Mm -hmm. What was it like growing up there? I didn't know any better. <laughs> uh, I uh, told my father once when I was uh, six years old, I was standing in a cornfield, and I said, why do we live here? And he said, well, it's where I was born. It's where my parents are. It's where our business, our church, our friends. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, Dad, this place is ugly. It's muddy. It's not very attractive. Mm -hmm. And we've been to Florida and saw the ocean, and uh, we've been to California and Arizona. And those are beautiful places. We could live in places like that, and we could have friends, and our family could come visit us, but why do we live here? Mm. And he told me, well, son, 
you live in my house, you eat my food, you'll do what I damn well tell you to do. When you turn 18, you will be a man, you can do anything you want. And I told him at that time that I didn't want to be a farmer, I did not want to be in Marin, Indiana, I wanted a life of adventure. And I intended on becoming a successful businessman. I was going to be a pilot, a soldier. I was going to uh, fly airplanes. I was going to skydive. I was going hunting in Africa. And uh, anything would be better than Marion, Indiana. And he said, well, uh, talk to me when you're 18. And so when I turned 18, it was in a place called Vietnam. Mm. I sent a letter home to him, and I said, Dad, this just beats the hell out of Marion, Indiana. <laughs> and I'm in it. There were tanks and helicopters and planes, and, and it was the adventure that I was looking for in my life. So you had that vision at six years of age. Yes. That's, that's what you want to do. You were going to hit the road. That's it. So you went to university in Indiana. I went to uh, Indiana University three different semesters and basically uh, was uh, failed out. Yep. I had no specific ambition for going to school. Mm-hmm. I went to school because it was expected of me, mm-hmm. and uh, unfortunately... When I was in high school, uh, my parents made me do my homework every night. When I went to college, I was so immature that uh, I didn't have the Mm self-discipline, and I had no real goal in my life other than I'm in college. Mm -hmm. And so I was bright. Mm -hmm. I tried out for the Air Force Academy. I got 99 percentile on every test. But if you don't have a goal, if you don't have a vision of where you're going, Mm. you're just lost. Mm. That's true. You did join the Air Force, right? Isn't that where you served? Yes, and you did a tour of Vietnam. Yes. How did that experience shape you? Because you said you were immature going into college. I can imagine going in, you know, six years in the service, and then Vietnam probably would be a, a very strong maturing process. Actually, I dreamed of being in the military. That's one of my goals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wanted to see the world. I wanted to see action. Mm-hmm. And so the first day of basic training We stood in lines and went through, and they gave us our uniforms and all that. And we went back into the place where we bunked, and a bunch of people had their new uniforms, and they were talking about, oh, this is Mickey Mouse. We're going to be in these stupid uniforms and stuff. And I'm listening to that, and I'm thinking, well, you volunteered for this. (laughs) And I'll tell you what, I'm really, I'm proud to put this uniform on. Mm -hmm. And from that moment on, I matured very, very quickly. Mm. I had found a vision of what I wanted, and I wanted to excel. I wanted to be the best there was Mm. at what I did. Mm. And so that was really when I started figuring out how to be a success in life. Mm. That's interesting. So where do you think that determination came from? Was it because you were actually walking in your goal and you you wanted to do something with it, or do you think it's innate, or was it something that you kind of... Well, you know, when you grow up in the Midwest and you grow up on a farm, you learn you do chores when you're four or five years old. Mm. And so a good work ethic is built into you as a, as a small child. Mm-hmm. And so my attitude always was, I'm not the smartest, the handsomest, the fastest, the tallest, but I can outwork anybody. Mm-hmm. I'm not afraid to be a hard worker. Mm-hmm. And so the determination of saying, if I'm starting behind the ball a little bit, I can make up with it uh, with nothing but hard work. Mm. And to a certain degree, that's true. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that's kind of the premise of these podcasts we're doing is the fact that success doesn't come without hard work. And in today's world, it's kind of the notion is that you could just put up a piece of technology and all the customers will come to you. That doesn't seem to be 
doesn't seem to be the case. How did you get into real estate? So from the Air Force, what, what was the timeline between the Air Force and real estate, and how did that come about? Well, the thing that happened was that uh, when I was 16, I read a book, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, mm. and basically it was you can achieve anything mm-hmm. if you make it a compulsion. You set yourself a goal, put it in writing, step-by-step plan to achieve mm-hmm. it, get yourself a mastermind group to help uh, you along the way, and just keep working towards your goal mm-hmm. and never, ever quit. Mm-hmm. And so... I read that very impressionable farm kid, and I said, well, I'm going to be a billionaire. You didn't question the book. You just said, I'm going to do the book. That's right. (laughs) And uh, amazingly, a couple weeks later, I read another book. And in that book, it was by William Nickerson, How I Turned $1,000 into a Million in My Spare Time in the Real Estate Business. Hmm. He was a post office uh, worker that uh, delivered mail by foot in uh, Southern California, and he discovered a fix-up property that was pretty beat up, and he bought it and fixed it up himself and uh, rented it out and then sold it. Hmm. And so then he decided to buy a duplex, and then the rest is history, and he ended up with thousands of apartment units and became a very wealthy person. And so having read The Thinking Grow Rich, I said, that's how I'll do it. I will buy and sell houses. Mm. And so I had no intention of ever being a real estate agent, but uh, I was stationed at Davis-Monthan Air Force Base in Mm. Tucson, and I was determined that uh, I was going to buy a house. And so at $99 a month as my base pay, (laughs) a wife and a child at home, Mm. I worked three part-time jobs. I delivered newspapers to 7-Elevens and newspaper routes and stuff at 2 in the morning, seven Mm. days a week. I worked in a filling station in some evenings and at a theater in some evenings. And so mm-hmm. my total pay at that time was $400 a month. I managed to buy a $10,000 house, fixed it up, lived in it, sold it in about uh, a year, and made a $5,000 profit. <laughs> and so my goal at that time was to get 21 single-family houses by the time I was 21, and I did. And so here I am, part-time in the military when I'm stateside, eventually coming back from overseas to Arizona State University to an ROTC detachment where I was an instructor. And so I had plenty of time. I got a real estate license to save the commission on my own deals. And after a few months, I kept looking at the other real estate people. And, you know, sometimes they'd get a commission once every three or four months. And I thought, well, this can't be that difficult. And I tried very diligently in addition to my investments. Six months, no sales, no listings. Mm. I was skinny, crew cut haircut, obviously in the military, Volkswagen with no air conditioning in Scottsdale or Tempe, and uh, no confidence. Uh, I ended up going to a seminar by the name of uh, Dave Stone. He was a, a brilliant genius back in the 60s. I heard my first professional platform speaker, and I knew I could do it. And it changed my life. And overnight, I became a huge success in selling. And, you know, courage comes from confidence, and confidence comes from experience. And experiences are both good and bad. Mm. And all of a sudden, I'm selling all these houses, inexpensive, ten, fifteen thousand. Today, they'd be a hundred thousand dollars or so. Mm-hmm. And I really sold my first few to Hispanics. And uh, I had people. The the guys would. You know, put their arms around me. The girls would hug me and thank me, and and I'm making you know 
$500 commission on this property, and everybody loves uh, that they're getting a chance to buy a house. Mm. And it just it clicked. It was I had a career where people wanted what I was selling. It wasn't like you have to buy life insurance or you have to do this or that. People wanted a home. And uh, I became very, very good at it. And even very young, nobody cared how young I was once I had the confidence and I had the trophies. And everybody said, wow, he's, he's really a hard worker. He'll hustle. It sounds like you just loved helping people. Yep. You enjoyed the process. I loved the process. That's great. And you got paid for it. So it accomplished so much for you. Oh, and compared to what I was making in the military. So I got out of the military, I think after six or seven years, I had re-enlisted in Vietnam and ended up stateside again at Arizona State University. Hated the desert, selling houses five months of the year in the summer. Mm-hmm. It was just miserable. And so I'd heard of God's country, which was Colorado, and we ended up here. Moved, totally just uprooted and came here. Had never visited the city, and I was in for shock. <laughs> I thought it was like Vail or Evergreen, where there's trees and, and water, and it's going to be just this most beautiful paradise. And it was just another desert, <laughs> and there were no trees. <laughs> but it made no difference. The die was cast. So there's no Google back then? You no. Couldn't, no. <laughs> You're just like, fire ready, am, I'm going. Yeah. So you get to Denver? Worked for another company for a few months to get my broker's license, and then uh, decided to start remakes. Just like that. I'm going to do this for myself. That's right. So now what I'm hearing is, so far you've got this work ethic. You've got this ambition. You've gone to work on yourself. You've learned personally. You've gotten the knowledge, but you've applied the knowledge. And you're doing well. You're enjoying yeah. yourself. And then you hit start Remax. So you have a dream for this. Like You're like, we're going to do this. And it was real estate maximums. Isn't that where, where it came from? Yeah, maximum commission for the agent, maximum service for the customer because we wouldn't have beginners and part-timers, and maximum recruiting for the owner of the office. The thing that's interesting is it became a cause. Mm-hmm. It was not mm-hmm. to make money. Mm-hmm. Money was a byproduct. Mm-hmm. And as I tried to start it, the entire industry, uh, the brokers, were totally against it. Right. And we went through very hard mm-hmm. times. But we worked our way through it, and I started with a few agents, and uh, they started doing well, and then a few more. Mm -hmm. And so long-term, it just became a cause that I was not going to quit. We were going to make this work. Yeah. If people talk today about being a disruptor, you didn't know you were one. No, You weren't trying to be one. I had no idea what I was doing. (laughs) I just, you know, we started in a recession. Mm. Uh, Fortunately, I'd failed out of college didn't understand anything about business or economics. All I knew was there were people out there that wanted to buy houses, and I knew how to help them buy them. Mm-hmm. And so maybe if I had been better educated, I would have said this is the wrong time to start a business. But as it was, people have to buy and sell in all kinds of markets. Yeah. And uh, I've watched a ton of people come into the industry in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And, you know, five years ago, it was a pretty tough industry. Mm-hmm. And they came in. Those that were determined found a way to make yeah, it work. Right, right. They didn't have enough knowledge, just determination, unless you go get it done. That's right. So the Remax starts off. When is it? Was it you started selling franchises, or you know? I know you've got some great stories about the first open the doors <laughs> and not sure and if this check was going to pay for that. And that's a typical small business. Yeah, uh, we sold one franchise in '75 yeah. uh, in Kansas City. We sold two in '76, one in Calgary and one in Washington D.C. And then at Christmas of 76, my eight branch managers came to me and said, will you sell us our offices and let us be franchisees? 
And I said, well, I paid for those offices and I built them and you earned salaries. And I said, I just can't, you know, give that business up. And they said, oh, well, we'll pay you a fair price plus a franchise fee. And you could be a full-time franchisor. And we had a gentleman's agreement, handshake, and that was Christmas and January 1st or 2nd. I started a company called Remax of America, and that was to expand by franchising mm-hmm. throughout uh, North America. Mm-hmm. And so we franchised uh, master franchises, major regions, and had decentralized were uh, a region in Chicago, a region in Florida, a region in whatever. Mm-hmm. And then they helped sell franchises. So at the end of 77, uh, we had 100 franchises sold. Wow. Now, so you had your eyes on the price, right? You had this cause. You had this, we're going to do this for the customer. We're going, to, we're going to demand the best from realtors. How did you manage to keep your eyes on the price when I know the industry wasn't exactly cheering you on? No. We were a threat because if we ended up paying agents, you know, after their expenses, they were going to make 85% or more, and the typical broker was paying 50-50 splits. And so it was a very uh, mean, vicious cycle that we had to work our way mm. through. The thing that happened was the more agents I hired and the more successful they became, the more it was proving the concept worked. Mm-hmm. And even though competing broker owners didn't like us, competing agents, they didn't care one way or the other. They were up selling houses. Mm-hmm. And once we had proven the concept, then it was just a groundswell. Mm-hmm. So it's hard enough to run a business. I mean, for most of our clients, we're coaching and training. It's like keeping them focused on the goal. This is number one, right? Clarity of goal and and how they're going to get there. But how do you overcome the negative vibes, the hissing snakes? How did you overcome those things? You know, it goes straight back to Think and Grow Rich. Mm. And uh, Mm. I have read the book 50-some times. I actually start teaching courses to my Mm. agents and my broker owners. And it was quite simple was... We had set our goal that mm-hmm. we would be the most successful real estate network in the world. And uh, then we wrote it down, and we said, what's our step-by-step plan? Because obviously we couldn't go from one agent to 100,000 agents in a week. Mm-hmm. We just kept adjusting it. We looked at our goal every single day. We knew we had to make X many recruiting calls and then eventually X many franchise sales calls. And we had this step-by-step plan. My mastermind group were my partners who were my best friends, my branch managers, my Mm -hmm. agents, that uh, they were all doing extremely well under the system. They Mm -hmm. loved it. Mm -hmm. And despite the fact I was struggling financially, their positive reaffirmation that this works and it will eventually work for me when Mm -hmm. I have enough people Mm -hmm. and I can pay off my debt. Mm -hmm. And so that's the way we built the company. Mm -hmm. You're a heck of a salesman, but I also know that I've been around you 15 years. Brian and I certainly learned to watch from watching you run your company and just, it's been an amazing experience. You're a heck of a salesman. We sold everybody on the concept. I mean, they, they believed in you because you believed so much in what you wanted to accomplish. When did you know you were onto a winner? What year was that? You know, by the third year, uh, we were paying our debt down and making a profit and maybe managing to mm. eke out a salary. By the fifth year, we'd become number one in the state of Colorado in transactions, sales volume. Uh, I was up to almost 300 agents. And so it was pretty obvious it was working. With that as a success story, it was pretty easy to go around the country and start selling regents and selling franchises of saying, look, if a kid in his mid-20s could start out in five years, have the most successful company in the state of Colorado, think of what you can do. Mm. The thing that was also interesting was I was the youngest person in the company of the first five years. (laughs) 
all of my branch managers of the branches I opened were 10 to 20 years older than me. And so, in essence, they grew me up. And when it was so frustrating and we were so broke and we were making so many mistakes, uh, the one thing I did that was probably the cornerstone of our success is I didn't want to fail. Mm. I wanted to make it work. Mm -hmm. So I swallowed my pride. And I sat with every one of my agents and every one of my managers continually Mm. and said, what did you like best about the company you worked at? What did you dislike the most about the company you worked at? What do you like best about this company? What am I doing right? Mm. What am I doing wrong? Mm. How would you change things? And basically, everybody was older than me. I was probably a better salesman than any of them. I mean, I had a marvelous sales record. But... I didn't have management skills. Uh, I led out of a, a charismatic leadership style. Of uh, I was enthusiastic. I believed in what I was doing. We're going to succeed type of thing. Mm-hmm. But what ended up happening was my agents and brokers and then eventually my franchisees helped mature me and build me into a successful business person. So it was a win-win. Win-win for everybody. Yeah, you were the energy. You were the you were the engine room, blowing them along, and they had the experience to kind of apply the energy in an organized, structured way that would help you both win. Yes, success and failure. You know a bit about both. Yes, I do. How do you? And I just love how you described. It takes a lot of humility to go to your customers, basically, and say, "I need your help." Is what you just described. But how do you handle success and failure? What advice would you give? someone as they're entering business careers like what's success going to teach you what's failure is going to teach you a lot of times success is harder to live with than failure Mm -hmm. to me i cannot accept the fact that i might have to file bankruptcy i owed the money i was going to pay the money one way or the other even if i ended up failing i'd go back to work as a real estate agent and find a way to pay every cent to every creditor that had helped me and our creditors a lot of them were small business people they needed their money but we were honest with them. Mm-hmm. Sat down with them. My first employee was Gail Main. Ten years later, we ended up becoming married. But at the time, she said, "Look, you're the recruiter, and you're the sales manager. You got to do those things. I'll handle the bill collectors." And so she was very smart, very yeah, uh, charismatic. And talking to bill collectors is the most disgusting thing in the world. <laughs> and she sat down with every one of them and said, "We can't afford to pay you." right now but we're not giving up and we've turned a corner and we'll pay you this much mm-hmm. this month mm-hmm. and then i'll tell you in a week or mm-hmm. two what we can pay you next month we paid off every single dollar that we owed mm-hmm. over a period of about two years many of our vendors that carried us have told us over the years that your honesty and your ability to uh, continue to communicate with us made us feel safe that we were going to make it mm-hmm. So the end result is today, many of those individuals have become wealthy as our approved suppliers (laughs) over the years, and we can all look back. In most cases, it's now their kids that are running the business. I just love that, Dave, because what I hear in that is is the fact that there's conviction of goals, but then there's the reality of having to operate a business. And for me, I think it's great leadership when you have that same determination to go, we're going to fulfill on our obligations. Because I can see the team rallying behind that. Because, like, well, if he believes it, well, then we believe it. So it gets us keep moving forward. But also I love the fact that, you know, you just described how you and Gail divided and conquered. Because I'd imagine 
it would have been very difficult for you to continue to bring that energy to the marketplace if you had to deal with bill collectors as well. Yeah. The thing that's, that's really nice is finding partners, employees that can complement mm-hmm. the skills that you have. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. my skills were not in day-to-day organizational things. Mm-hmm. My skills were in selling. Mm-hmm. And so... When you first start a business, you're the chief cook, bottle washer, janitor, wrapped up in one, Mm -hmm. because you have more time than you have money. Mm -hmm. If you can succeed long enough and you start making profits, then you can hire people who are better than you. So instead of just being your own bookkeeper, you can hire somebody Mm -hmm. with an accounting background. Mm -hmm. Then eventually you can hire an in-house legal counsel, and eventually you hire somebody in human resources. Mm -hmm. I think that success is certainly a journey. You can learn from your mistakes, and you're an idiot if you don't, because if you keep making the same mistake over and over again, mm-hmm. that's, you know, the lunatic fringe. Mm-hmm. I think the other thing that's very interesting about building the company is that most people throw their heart and soul into their company, and at some point, you reach a point of burnout. Mm-hmm. If you're going to work 18 hours a day and do it day after day, week after week, month after month, you end up a failure perfect example, all the officers of the company ended up becoming divorced in the first 10 years. Mm. We were so committed to what we were doing, and the business life, the career was so exciting Mm. of building this gigantic empire that we lost sight that we also had families. Mm. And so Mm. you're stupid if you keep making the same mistake, and you realize to achieve this unbelievable success... We made a lot of those mistakes. Mm-hmm. You don't want to make them again. So at some point, I had to figure out that, hey, work always expands to meet the amount of time you have for it. And if you're willing to work 18 hours a day, there'll always be work. That's right. And so if you say, no, I'm going to work eight hours a day, and I'll do important stuff during that eight hours, then you'll have another life. So how do you do that? How do you go about doing that? You have to focus on two or three major key results areas in any business. Mm -hmm. And I'll say something that, before you understand the explanation, may make you think the wrong thing of me. We decided that our business was we sell franchises, which is number one. We recruit, retain the agents, which is number two. Mm -hmm. And we collect the money, which is number three. Mm -hmm. And so that's a pretty simplistic Mm -hmm. system. Mm -hmm. And any day that we're not doing those three things, we're wasting our time. Mm Now. To somebody that listens that the first time, they think, oh, it's all about the money. Mm-hmm. All you care about is selling franchises, recruiting, retaining the mm-hmm. agents. Yeah. And what we found out was the more franchises we sold, the more agents we hired, the more market share we got, mm-hmm. the more advertising that we spent collectively, the bigger the impact we had on the market, the more the average agent earned. Mm-hmm. And the bigger that we became, mm-hmm. the more the number of agents were in the average office. Mm-hmm. And so by building mm-hmm. this brand and market share and so on, everybody benefits. And if you get lost and you don't continue to do that forever, you just get lost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So if you understand that's what drives the business, then the next question is, how do you keep from burning out? Mm-hmm. And a lot of times you have to hit the wall two or three times and start banging your head, mm-hmm. stating, this hurts. You know, I'm, I'm tired. Mm-hmm. And so what I ended up doing was two or three important things. First is my job changed. My career changed month after month, year after year. 
And so I went from being a listing and selling expert to becoming a broker owner and a manager of my operation to becoming a franchisor. We went from our first convention with 33 people, which I thought was an unmanageable mess, you know, to where now, you know, 40-some years later, we have conventions of 10 or 15,000. Mm-hmm. It wasn't an overnight success. And so as the business expanded and we started going international and we started building products and services and all the things, it was a continual refreshing in my mind of I'm not doing the same thing mm-hmm. day after day after day. The second thing I became was kind of an expert at time management. Mm. And as a matter of fact, I taught time management courses. And so as the more books that I read and the more speakers I listened to, I realized that uh, the vast majority of my time was wasted and that uh, work always has to be done by the least expensive person that can do it. Mm. And when I started the company, I could probably type 110 words a minute, but... If I'm selling a franchise or recruiting an agent or signing up a relocation company, Mm -hmm. that's much more valuable and let me pay a secretary to do the typing. Mm -hmm. So that kept giving me variety in my life, if you will. Mm -hmm. And then the third thing, of course, is time off, limiting the number of hours and making sure you schedule time for yourself. And if you just do nothing but work, you burn out. You're not fresh. You're not excited. Mm -hmm. uh, You're not exciting to be around. Mm -hmm. And so I started scheduling vacations and weekends and things on my calendar a year in advance, just like I scheduled the conventions or the quarterly sales meetings or whatever. Mm -hmm. And you find out when you start scheduling those things, you make the commitment, you buy the airline tickets, you're going to go. And that helped. And the fourth thing that really was exciting to me is I am a serial entrepreneur. I was fascinated with other businesses. Mm-hmm. And I used to go to other people's conventions mm-hmm. that had nothing to do with the real estate business. First, it was to see what did they do at their conventions? Because I'd never been to any conventions except for the ones I did for myself. And uh, the more I looked at other businesses, the more I got involved. And so eventually along the way, I started travel agencies, which still exist. I uh, drilled 200 oil wells in uh, Oklahoma and learned the oil business. I started an Arabian horse operation in 1988. I bred over 2,000 Arabian horses, over 50% of the first and second place winners of all divisions in the United States and Canada nationals for the last 17 years have been horses that I bred. And then I got into building houses. And then, of course, the building we're in here, mm-hmm. this was fun. I uh, founded uh, a wildlife museum that's about 150,000 square feet, quarter million visitors a year. Each one of those things made me manage my time better at Remax because I had these time demands outside in addition to my free time. And result was I stayed engaged with Remax because I learned from the other businesses things that I could bring back into Remax. And just as I had learned and experienced everything with Remax, it made it easy for me to succeed in other businesses. Uh, so you applied the same formula across the board. Because you know many hours than anybody else, right? Yeah. You've got the exact same amount of hours as I do, as everybody else listening to this has. Yeah. And the other thing is, uh, you know, you hate to talk ages. I started the company as the youngest person. 
uh, now in this building, Gail and I are, are the oldest people, uh-huh. and 80% of the people at headquarters, 300 of us, 80% of them were not born when we started REMAX in 1973. So somehow through this whole thing, and despite the physical problems that I had four or five years ago, uh, I'm as enthusiastic and excited uh-huh. to come to the office every day awesome. that I would pay for this job. <laughs> That's great. And so enthusiasm does not know any age boundaries. Mm-hmm. I know people who are dead at age 25, not engaged in their job at all. Mm-hmm. It's a miserable job, and I just have to have money to raise my family versus mm-hmm. people who are 70 years old out selling houses right mm-hmm. now that are having the time of their life. Mm-hmm. What gives you energy? What gives you this enthusiasm? I think you build on small successes, and then you have big successes, and then obviously... Uh, success breeds success. Mm -hmm. When I started the company, my mentor, Dave Stone, Mm -hmm. told me that, well, you're getting all the trophies and you get all the attention because uh, you're the top salesman. And when you become the manager, it's no longer you getting the trophies. You have to hand them out. And he said, you will have to live in the reflected glory of the achievements of the people that you're leading. Mm. He got it wrong. It's fun to be at the top of the mountain. It's fun to be the owner or manager of the largest real estate company in your community, in your city, in your state, in the country, in the world. It's fun to be an expert and be on CNBC or CBS or CNN or whatever it might be. And it's fun to share the knowledge at major conventions of sales organizations throughout the world. Mm -hmm. That's great stuff. I've also noticed that I've really enjoyed meeting the people that you have here at Remax. You know, the quality of the Mike Ryans of the world and just great, great people who have a great heart for what you're doing. What is it that you look for in people? I really don't look for a specific skill set. I look for attitude. Mm -hmm. I look for curiosity. Mm -hmm. I look for a great work ethic. I look for personable people. Life is too short Mm -hmm. to put up with somebody who's miserable. I want people who like being together. Mm. Realtors, for the most part, we are not bookkeepers or accountants or engineers. Mm. We're people people. We enjoy being around other people. Mm -hmm. And so we look for people who have similar attitudes. Mm -hmm. You can teach a skill set. Now, when you're a small company with one, two, eight offices, you can't afford an in-house legal counsel. And even if you get one... 40 years later, that individual has not got the skill set to operate in 100 countries with complex currency, trademark issues, governments, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so as you grow your business, you will have to replace people. Mm -hmm. And it's a sad thing, but the team you start with is never going to be the team that you end with. Mm -hmm. We have a perfect example here with Peyton Manning perhaps one of the best, if not the best, quarterback in history. Mm-hmm. His skill set was uh, great in his mind, but his body, after being punished for 20-some years, just didn't have the resiliency of a 20-, 25-year-old quarterback. Mm-hmm. And so when your quarterback ages so much and he can't help the team win, you replace the quarterback. And usually the quarterback's willing to replace himself. Yeah. And so even at uh, Remax, I have intentionally brought more and more young people in. 
my average officer's probably been with me 15 years, and the average officer now, if you take Gail and I out of the equation, is around 40 years old. Wow. And so the thing that's important is everybody talks about, oh, we have a family here. Remax is not a family. I thought it was 30 years ago. Somewhere along the line, I figured out that a family tolerates family members that aren't pulling their weight. Mm. If Uncle Joe gets a little plowed at Christmas dinner and tells an off-color joke in front of the kids, uh, everybody says, that's Uncle Joe, and he's got a little potty mouth, but he's Uncle Joe, you know. Mm. Uh, Uncle Joe gets a DUI, well, you know, know, he drinks too much. Mm. Uh, By the same token, a team, like a sports team, you win together. Mm -hmm. If your quarterback is too old, the receivers aren't going to set any records because they're not going to get the ball. Mm. And so if you tolerate somebody who is incompetent, you are taking advantage of the rest of the team members. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so even a sports team has got a family attitude of, gee, you know, Joe broke his leg and so on. We're going to go cheer him on and help him up and go to the hospital and visit him and so on. But we still have to win. Mm -hmm. And so once you figure that out, it's easier to run the business. Mm -hmm. That's great stuff. You can tolerate family members, but you don't have to live with it inside of a business. You've got to have people who want to win together. Yeah. That's great. You've been a student of success. What I've heard in this so far is that you've paid attention along the way, learning from others, but then applying, and also mentors. You know, and I think that a lot of times, you know, you've got a great saying, which is, you can be a business for yourself, but not by yourself. How important have mentors been, or how important is it You've mentioned mastermind groups, mentors. How important is that to a business person or to someone in general? Incredibly important. Mm. You know, things really fascinating is coaching. Mm. And so if you go back 44, 45 years ago, people were on a 50-50 split. Mm. The broker would hire beginners. 80% of them would fail because they weren't motivated internally enough to succeed. Mm. But the broker was the original coach and mentor. Mm. And then when we started REMAX and the commission splits went so high, mm-hmm. brokers decided, well, I can't afford to spend that kind of time with these people. I train them and they leave and go someplace else or start their own business. And the commission split's too low. Mm-hmm. I'll just do my own business and we'll see how it works. And that opened the door mm-hmm. to where coaches came in the business. Thank you. That were starting to do <laughs> the same thing brokers did 40 years ago, right. which was... You know, call twice a week, set some goals, discuss where you're going with your future. And so it proves that agents wanted more than a 50-50 split, Mm -hmm. but they still want the coaching. Mm -hmm. And so if the broker doesn't provide it, they will pay for it Mm -hmm. and gladly pay for it because they know their income goes up. Mm -hmm. I've been coached my entire business life. Mm. I started out with some mentors. A lot of people don't know it. I did a 30-city speaking tour with Zig Ziglar over 20 years ago. And I had the opportunity, because of conventions, of hiring the most talented speakers, platform people in the world. Mm. And I learned from it. Also, when we were so broke and we paid to get our CRBs and get our CRSs and so on, we paid with our own money, and money was tight. Mm. If we go to an all-day seminar and take 10 pages of notes, we didn't come back and put the notes up on the desk <laughs> and say, oh, that was a nice seminar. We'd sit down and say, okay, we spent the money and the time. Yeah. What are the two, three, four key takeaways from this, mm-hmm. and how do we apply it to our business? Fantastic. Fantastic. And the other thing is I continue to learn. 
Yeah. And a lot of times people will be fascinated that they'll see me in the front row at seminars and so on, taking my notes and, you know, thinking mm-hmm. about it. Mm-hmm. It's I, certainly something I've watched from, from a distance, kind of watching you, is the fact that I know that I know you're a voracious reader. Now, again, I don't know where you get the time to do it, but I know that you're a voracious reader and you've got uh, quite the light. There's not a book, I've heard you and Brian have many conversations, not a book that he's read that you haven't read and vice versa. But also it's helped me in my career to kind of look at you going, well, if he has to keep learning, if he's going to keep growing, I guess i I got to keep uh, opening up the books too. But what resources, what do you recommend? What do you read today? What are you exposed to? Where do you get fed? What are the things that... Well, my goal is two books a week minimum. Hmm. One will be fiction or fun, and one will be oriented to some business application of some kind. When we do our conventions, we tape everybody, whether it's audio or video. And so a lot of times in the convention, I'm busy. About six years ago, I did 24 sessions in six days. And so I don't get to hear a lot of the speakers. I hear them in my car coming back and forth to work. Or I hear them if I'm going up to the ranch. It's a two-hour drive, and I have a chance to listen to two one-hour segments going up and two one-hour segments coming back. Everybody has the same 24 hours a day. Yeah. And everybody has the same challenges. Mm-hmm. you got single fathers, you got single moms trying to make a living, trying to provide for the kids and being a mother and a father or whatever. You just have to prioritize what's most important to you. Mm-hmm. And so my prioritization is I watch almost no TV. Mm-hmm. I watch certain news programs because I have a curiosity about what's going on in the world. Some people say it's a waste of time. You're not going to affect it anyway, but it is one of the things I'm interested in. I'm not interested in sitcoms. I've never seen a late-night program, a Johnny Carson, or any of these famous people. I don't have time for that. I'll watch a few sports, not much, but uh, I'm not glued to a television set. Mm -hmm. I'm reading or I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And so (laughs) if it's sports... I want to be playing softball. I don't want to be sitting here watching somebody else playing a game. That's uh, great. You just prioritize what's important to you in your life, and you just keep focusing on it. So you eliminate the distraction. Eliminate the time wasters. Yep. It's great stuff. Uh, give you a perfect example. Facebook. Yeah. I could care less. I'm on there anonymously, and I haven't looked at a Facebook post in four or five years. Now, if you're a real estate agent... Or you're in sales and you need to build your business, Facebook is a fantastic opportunity for you mm-hmm. if you know how to use it. Mm-hmm. And that's not 90% of what you put on Facebook mm-hmm. is about your business. Mm-hmm. It's 95% is about fun things mm-hmm. and other people and occasionally something about your business. Right. But we use Facebook very profitably. I own five or six motorcycle dealerships, a couple gun shops, and uh, we farm with Facebook. They have their sites. I never look at them. I have tech people that do that sort of thing. So it has a value. Mm -hmm. But if you're sitting there looking at Facebook an hour a day, what could you have been doing having your own adventures an hour a day? That's so true. That's such great stuff. Let me ask you this. If you weren't in this profession, what would you have liked to have done? Is there another profession you were curious about or maybe you would have had a go at? I would have loved to have stayed in the military for a career. I love the military. Hmm. I was an enlisted man, a sergeant, Mm -hmm. and... I just couldn't live on that kind of an income and provide for my family the way I wanted to. Mm. I built some very beautiful homes. I designed and helped design this building that we're in here. I designed the museum. 
I've done several commercial projects, and I would love to have been an architect or a developer. Hmm. Because at the end of the day, if you're a realtor and you sell houses, you got your statistics. And as you go through the neighborhood, you can say, well, I sold that house back in 73. I sold that house here. But if you built a building like this for a career, when it's done, you got something tangible you can look at, mm. walk through, and say, wow, I wish I'd done this a little different. That's great. What is the best piece of advice you've ever gotten? I would say hire very, very slowly and fire very, very quickly. <laughs> What one talent or gift do you wish you possessed that you currently don't? <laughs> My entire life, I've wanted to speak foreign languages. I have never paid the price in time or effort to do so. Mm, interesting. Well, I think you've already said this, but what book has been most instrumental in your life? first one that was important was Thinking Go Rich. The second one was the How I Turned a Thousand into a Million in the Real Estate Business. And the last one would be Success Principles by Jack Canfield. And Jack Canfield on the seventh or eighth page had a, an equation, E plus R equals O. The event plus your response determines the outcome. Mm-hmm. And so everything in your world is E plus R equals O. Mm-hmm. Your response to what's going on, you can't change what's going on. What's your response? And if you've got a positive attitude and you say, okay, we're in a bad real estate recession, uh, what's the response? Well, the response is, I better figure out how to do short sales. I better figure out how to do REOs. Mm-hmm. And the outcome will be that you've got uh, financial success. That's great. What's your favorite song? Spirit of New Orleans and uh, San Francisco. All right. And what movie do you watch over and over? Probably every John Wayne movie. It's ever been <laughs> that doesn't surprise me. <laughs> Dave, thank you so much. This has been just jam-packed with great content, 44 years of wisdom, knowledge, and I'm going to listen to this over and over again, as I know so many people are going to. Thank you so much for your time. We really, really appreciate it. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Well, powerful stuff. You know, I enjoyed that interview so much, and, and here are a couple of things I learned from my time with Dave. You know, he read two books that really changed his life, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill really showed him what he wanted to do and what he wanted to accomplish. And then he read a book called How I Turned $1,000 into a Million in My Spare Time in the Real Estate Business. And that was the how. That was how he was going to achieve his goal. You know, he set a goal. He set a very high goal to be a billionaire. And he had the clarity of a goal. He wrote it down. He made a step-by-step plan. And then he made daily adjustments as needed. I thought that was powerful. He talked about work-life balance. And he shared how we can all be guilty of working 18 hours a day or eight hours a day and that the work always expands to fill the time we have. So all I got from that was schedule the most important things in your life to make sure we don't burn out. He became an expert on time management and today he doesn't waste any time on television or social media, reads two books a week. And his, I love what he said, where he said, why watch a sport when you can play a sport? Building on small successes, thought that was powerful because that breeds success. I love this type of interview where you hear the real story behind someone's success. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. I'm certainly going to listen to it over and over. There's so much gold here that I know will help you in your business and your life. And remember, don't forget to head over and leave a review on iTunes. We're also on Android. So download your favorite podcast app from Google Play and tune in for free. You know, our goal is to positively influence as many folks as we can. So please feel free to share it with all your friends and family members. And in the tradition of the Brian Buffini Show, I'd like to leave you with an Irish blessing that our grandfather used to say. May the roads rise up to meet you 
and may the wind always be at your back. May the rain fall soft upon your fields and the sunshine warm upon your face. Until we meet again, may God hold you in the hollow of his hand. See you next time.